0: James, well, to the end of the New Testament, right after the big book of Hebrews back there. James chapter 1. For the sake of you who are visiting, we're studying through this book, a few verses every week. Today we'll look at verses 16, 17, and 18, 16 to 18, James chapter 1. You know, it's not what things look like but it is what they're made of that determines their strength, their ability to withstand stress, at the risk of uh, showing myself to be even less of a mechanic than you think I am, which is not that much to start with. Let me tell you how this truth was driven home to me some years ago. We used to have an old 1972 Volvo. It was a great car. It was built like a tank. Both of our kids learned to drive on that car. You couldn't hurt it, I don't think. I started having trouble with the alternator on that car and uh, the, the bolt that uh, held it to the mounting arm there kept, uh, w- would break off, sheared off. And uh, that was understandable, there was a lot of pressure on that thing, the belt pulling on it all the time. And it was not easy to uh, get to, it was not easy to replace and I probably didn't have the right tools. But I finally got it out and got the old one drilled out and uh, got a new bolt. And and got it in there, busted my knuckles trying to do it, and finally had it securely installed. And about within a week, it sheared off again. And I thought, man, got a defective bolt. And I went through this whole thing again, and only to have it shear off again. And finally, some merciful person explained to me that getting the right size bolt, the one that looked exactly like the one that I pulled out of there, was only half the task. What really mattered was that I get a bolt of the proper strength, not just the right size. For the sake of you who are ignorant as I was, there are little marks on the top of a bolt that indicate how strong it is, what it's made of. That's what determines whether or not it will withstand the pressure and, this, and the tension, or whether it's just going to shear off. Like I said, it's not what things look like. It's what they're made of that determines their strength. Now, I tell that little story on myself because in a similar way, our ability to withstand the pressure of the the temptation, trouble, trial complex that James is talking about here, our ability to withstand that is determined not by the look or the sound of our Christian faith that we hear this morning and how well we sing or or how pious we look. No, it's determined by what our faith is made of. What kind of God we really know. What kind of work he has really done inside of us. Well, that's the point of this text this morning. The Holy Spirit reminding us of the bedrock of God's character and of God's grace, which we need to remember in the time of trouble and temptation and testing. Well, let me read the text, verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of the truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he has created. Now, we could outline this passage with two nice little points. God gives us good things, and secondly, God gives us new life. That would be kind of an accurate little outline. But that misses the point of the context of this. These verses are stuck in the context of this whole discussion of trouble and testing and temptation that comes into our life that falls upon us apparently out of nowhere. The things that press us and expose our real spiritual strength or weakness. Now that context defines the point of these truths that are set before us in these verses. So rather than just giving you a little outline, let me apply these truths to our situation And first of all, the first thing we might apply in this way. When things look bad, remember, God is good. When things look bad, remember that God is good. I don't know if any of you remember, it was years ago now, the uh, televangelist Oral Roberts caused quite a stir, for he announced that God had told him if he didn't raise a certain amount of money, some huge amount, I don't remember how much. If he didn't raise this money, that God was going to take his life. And I was a chaplain at the time. I think everybody in my unit asked me about that. Would God really do that, you think? And, of course, it uh, made the gospel the laughing stock of a lot of people. The issue was always the same. Is God like that? What's God like anyway? Well, someone in that time frame, I don't remember who was it I heard this from, but somebody gave a wonderful answer to that outrageous claim and and, and said, you know, God is not a terrorist who takes hostages and then kills them unless the ransom is paid. God is not a terrorist who takes hostages and kills them unless the ransom is paid. You see, it's a question of character. What kind of God is God anyway? And God is not like War Robert said he was. But that's the point the Spirit is making in verse 16 and 17. You see, when we're faced with trouble and trial and temptation, we are tempted to say, God's a tyrant. God's out to get me. How can he do this to me? We're tempted to blame God. Even to blame him for our sin or the consequences of our sin as we talked about last week. But James says, hold on just a minute. Let me tell you about God. Let me tell you what he's really like. God is not like that. Let me tell you about his goodness. When things look bad, you need to remember God is good. Now, our text unpacks that with three little different supporting statements in this verse 17. First thing, we know that God is good because everything good comes from him. You see that in verse 17? Every good and perfect gift is from above. Actually, two ways that it talks about gifts. It says all good giving comes from God. There the emphasis is on the quality of the act of giving. And then it says every perfect gift comes from God. There the emphasis is on the suitability of the gift, but the point is simple and crystal clear. Every good thing that you have ever known came from the God, from God, the good giver of perfect gifts. In the middle of trouble, you need to remember that God is good. He's the good giver of perfect gifts. He's good. Well, he doesn't leave it at that. Secondly, he says God's giving is generous and it's constant. That's in the middle of verse 17. These good gifts are coming down from the Father of lights. Here the point is made that it's God who created the sun and the moon and the stars, which day after day, night after night, stream down upon us light and warmth even an occasional spectacular meteor shower. And all those things upon which we are so dependent for our life and our light and for beauty, those are indicative of the goodness of God. His gifts are continually streaming down upon us, just like the light of the sun and The moon and the star streams down upon the earth, even when we're not thinking about it, when we don't think about it for weeks, when we take it all for granted. God is still generously giving good things to us day in and day out. So in the middle of the dark night, don't question God's goodness. It is as certain as the constellations above your head. It is as predictable as the sunrise in the morning or the tides controlled by the moon. God's giving is generous and it is constant. When things look bad, when things look dark, think about the character of God. He's good. He's still good. Well, one more way he says it. God is even greater than those good gifts. That comes up at the end of verse 17. He does not change like shifting shadow. Here James uses a couple of words that come from astronomy, which are translated for us, shifting and shadow. These, these are words that speak of the variation and the movement of the heavenly bodies, variation that causes change in the seasons, change in the length of the day, The universe certainly isn't standing still. There's there's predictable changes going on. But while there is variation in the universe, while the heavenly bodies, the light, the earth, certainly change and go through phases, uh, the the Father of lights, the creator of all of those things, does not change. Nothing that comes from him can be anything but good. He is faithful. Absolutely faithful. He is unchangeable in all of his goodness. That's the point of that great hymn. We're going to sing it in a few minutes. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not, as thou hast been, thou forever will be, summer and winter and springtime and harvest and sun, moon, stars and their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness of thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Great is thy faith. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, your hand is provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. You see, the point is, when things look bad, when things look really bad, when things are at their very worst, the sun still shines predictably. The universe still functions the way God made it. And so does the Creator. When things look bad, you need to remember God is still good. He's not a tyrant. He's not a terrorist. He's good. He's good. This morning, if you're overwhelmed with trouble, if you're bogged down in the mire of despondency, before you shake your fist in God's face and say, how could you let this happen to me? You need to remember what God's really like not a tyrant. He's not out to get you. He's not trying to destroy you. He is good and faithful. In fact, he is sustaining your life even while you doubt him. In his goodness, he just gave you the breath with which you accuse him. Indeed, you are taking for granted his goodness while you question him. Don't be deceived, James says. God's not evil. An evil God would have destroyed us long ago. No matter how hard things look at this moment, remember God is good. Profoundly good. To the depths of his character, he's good. On the other hand, if you're basking in that goodness, living in comfort, good health, and enjoying all the beauty and the blessing that God's creation is provident at the same time being your own thing and generally disregarding him that's you i call you to come to your senses turn around why do you think god is treating you so well to underwrite your disregard for him don't blame him for a fool god explains in his word romans 2 that His goodness is designed to lead us to repentance before we face judgment. His goodness is a token of His grace to draw us to Himself. So don't spurn His goodness. Don't use His goodness against Him. Come and acknowledge Him and abandon yourself and trust the Savior who has already demonstrated God's goodness to you and come and render to him the honor that's due him. Well, our text goes on and talks about a a second thing that kind of flows from the first. Look at verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he has created. I think the thing that uh, the Lord wants to say to us in this last verse is this. That when things seem hopeless, we need to rest in God's grace. When things seem hopeless, we need to rest in God's grace. Just by way of illustration, have you ever heard the term walks off? W-O-X-O-F. Actually, it's not a word, it's a, it's a weather observation. It's one of the worst weather observations you could get as a pilot. Every one of those letters means something. The W, this is a little meteorology lesson for the day. The W means that you have an indefinite cloud ceiling. The O means that that cloud ceiling is at zero feet above the ground, clouds laying on the ground. The X means that the visibility is obscured. The second O means that the visual range the distance that you can see is zero. And the F means that the thing that is obscuring your vision is fog. Indefinite ceiling, zero feet, obscured with zero visibility in fog. Up weather observation, when it comes off the teletype machine or a who says walks off, like the worst weather you can have. It's zero, zero. The cloud is sitting on the ground with zero visibility. You can't see your hand in front of your face hardly. I'm sure you've known fog like that. I'm kind of fascinated by the fog. It's a deadly thing in those days when I was flying. But there's more to it than that. Think about how you feel in the midst of the fog. and a wet and damp, but cold. <laughs> I don't mean that. I mean, something I think happens psychologically to us when we're in really bad fog. We, we suddenly feel an eerie kind of isolation. It's suddenly like the rest of the world isn't there. You could be a hundred feet from your house, but it's like suddenly it's not there. You're oblivious to things that in your head you know are out there, but you can't see. It's, it's like your whole world is confined to right here. Like you came from nowhere and you're headed nowhere and, and this moment kind of has no context. Isolated. Strange isolation. I talk about fog because I think that it illustrates what trials and temptation and trouble do to us. They make us lose sight of the things that we know are there, but then we can't see them for a while. And we begin to feel as though they don't exist. Our trouble makes us feel isolated. It makes us feel all alone. It makes us feel cut off. It makes us feel uncertain about Everything, what's happened before, where we were headed. When trials come, they tend to obscure our faith until we doubt that the mountains of God's grace are even there anymore. We doubt that anybody cares. We don't see anyone. And so just as fog forces a pilot to absolutely abandon what he can see and abandon his senses and trust only in what his instruments say to him, So trouble does that. It causes us to abandon how we feel, abandon what we think, and to trust what God has said is true. Well, here in verse 18, God reminds us of those things that are true that we need to trust in in the time of trouble. Here he pulls back the shades a little bit. He rolls back some of the fog for a moment and reminds us of where we are. Specifically, he talks to us about his grace. Is grace, so that we'll remember these things when the fog rolls back in again and we can't see them and we're tempted to forget about them. You see, God's goodness that we were talking about a minute ago is not just kind of some general thing. God created the world and it was good and he kind of left us and said, have a good time. That's not how it worked. Sin entered the picture and death and alienation from God and all the heartache and the trouble that come as the inevitable result of that. And so now what? How can God's goodness and his love be displayed in the midst of a sinful world where he has said he's going to bring judgment on us for our sin? Well, it comes in his grace. That comes in Jesus Christ. That's how we can know his goodness, because of his grace. And so in this one little verse, verse 18, God traces the expression of that grace that we know in Jesus. Three little expressions of grace he gives us. First of all, he says he chose us. He chose us. That's grace. <laughs> he didn't have to choose us. It. It's not the first time this grand truth has been used to encourage troubled disciples. You remember the night just before Jesus was betrayed, tried, and then later crucified. Remember as he talked to his disciples and he's preparing them for what's to come. He's, he's getting them ready for the trouble they're about to face. He's He's, he's explaining to them how they need to stay tight with him and remain in him. And what does he say to them? Remember John 15? He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I chose you. That's grace. That's grace. So now again, God addresses us in our trouble, and he says, you need to remember, I chose You. In Christ, before the foundation of the world, I set my affection, I turn my love to you. You see, we have hope not because we're better than everybody else. We have hope because not because our lives are untouched by trouble. But we have hope because God loved us and chose us for his own. So when things look hopeless, Rest and that sovereign grace of God. He chose us in Christ. And well, then he goes on. Chose us, according to verse 18, to give us birth through the word of truth. God demonstrates his grace not just in, in, in the decrees before the foundation of the earth, but in our own experience. He has given us new birth in Jesus. Well, what Christ has done for us is radical indeed. Not just some principle that he's established, not not just some opportunity that he extends to us, but he has caused us to be reborn. He's given us new life, the resurrection life of Jesus. He makes us new creatures in Christ when we're in the thick of trouble when we realize that we're just as vulnerable as everybody we have the same trouble everybody has and then we're weak and sinful and, and our hope is, is about to dissipate what do we remember wait a minute wait a minute by the word of the gospel God has made me his son his daughter he's caused me to be born anew I may be weak but his resurrection life that gives me new life is strong When things look hopeless, rest in His grace. He chose us. He gives us new life, <clears throat> new life. And then finally, verse eighteen says that we are only the first fruits of God's grace. What we've experienced of the grace of God is only the beginning. The whole idea of first fruits, of course, comes from the Old Testament. They're the very first part of every crop was to be given as an offering to the Lord was a token of the whole harvest that was his from him and for him. And so Christ's work in us now only points to the whole harvest. The full work of God whereby he will redeem his whole creation, create a whole new heaven and new earth, which there will be no sin and no dying and no curse but only perfect relationship to the Lord. Now sometimes in our time of trouble and trial we forget all about that we look around we see nothing but disaster pain and we lose hope and we begin to think this is all a hoax I just dreamed this up there isn't anything to this Wait a minute he says what you see is not all there is immediate admittedly what God has done in you is only the beginning it's only a token. But the fact that you don't see the perfect blessedness and peace of the world doesn't mean that it's not coming. God has promised. He raised Jesus from the dead. And in that he promises he will raise us from the dead. And he will redeem the whole creation. He has begun his work in us. It started already. So in the middle of the trouble, don't deny that. It's still true. And things seem hopeless. Rest of God's grace the grace by which he chose us the grace by which he gives us new life the grace which he promises for eternity see what's talking about the, about the fog when the fog shrouded morning you may be isolated and unable to see anything around you but in reality nothing has changed the mountain is still right there your house is still right there your family's still in there Everything's the same. And so it is when the fog of testing and trouble closes in on us and suddenly we can't see. Suddenly we we, we lose perspective and we feel all alone. But God's grace didn't change. His election is still certain. His spirit has still given us new birth. The promise of eternity is still true. Grace didn't change. You may feel terrible. You may not see any help on the horizon. You may feel all alone and cut off. And in the midst of the trouble, rest on his grace. So will our faith stand up to the pressure of trouble and testing? Well, it depends on what it's made of. The time of testing, when trial and trouble come our way, we're tempted to think that God is hard and uncaring, and that the things we believed are not really true, they're just a hoax. And then what? Well, faith that looked good sitting in church, or kind of some tradition that was passed on, from mom and dad. That kind of faith will just snap in an instant in a time of real trouble. Now we need faith that has more substance. Faith that knows God as he is. Faith that has experienced the grace of God. Faith that rests on the character of God and the mercy and faithfulness of God. And so here, God wants to make sure that we know and believe Crews that are hardened steel wants to make sure that when we face trials, we face them not resting on our good feeling, but resting on God's character. Not resting on how good we've done and how good we think we're doing, but resting on God's grace who chose us, gave us new life, promised us eternity. So here is this section on trials and faith is wrapping up. God sets these truths before them, before us, makes them crystal clear. Shouts them through the fog of our pain and confusion. Remember, God's good. When things look bad, he's still good. Rest in his grace. Even when things seem hopeless, Rest in his grace. Oh dear brothers and sisters, may the whole world, may the hosts of heaven, may the spirits of faithful men and women who have gone before us, may they all today look at us in our trouble and give praise to God, admitting that God's grace is vindicated, that his wisdom in saving us was proven right, for even in the midst of our severe trial, we will not faint, we will not weaken, we will not run, we will stand firm, faithful, trusting in the goodness and the grace of God. Amen. Dear Father, thank you for these truth that we know and yet Lord we all know what it is to lose sight of oh Lord I pray that in the good time that we would be diligent to know better the things that you've told us to walk with you closely where we know you we know what you're like We know you're trustworthy. We've experienced your grace. But Lord, we we never know when the most severe testing will just blindsight us. Suddenly leave us wondering, aching, hurting. Oh God, equip us, I pray, to stand in the day of trouble. And Lord, for those who are already in the day of trouble, we're in the thick of the testing right now. Oh, Lord, give grace to remember, to trust this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.